Chapter 10 of An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation by Jeremy Bentham. Chapter 10 Of Motives. Section 1 Different Senses of the word motive. Footnote. Note by the author, July 1822. For a tabular simultaneous view of the whole list of motives, in conjunction with the correspondent pleasures and pains, interests and desires, see by the same author, Table of the Springs of Actions, etc., with explanatory notes and observations. London, 1817. Hunter St. Paul's Churchyard, 8 volumes, page 32. The word inducement has of late presented itself as being in its signification more comprehensive than the word motive, and on some occasions more apposite. End footnote. It is an acknowledged truth that every kind of act whatever, and consequently every kind of offence, is apt to assume a different character, and be attended with different effects, according to the nature of the motive which gives birth to it. This makes it requisite to take a view of the several motives by which human conduct is liable to be influenced. By a motive, in the most extensive sense in which the word is ever used with reference to a thinking being, is meant anything that can contribute to give birth to, or even to prevent, any kind of action. Now the actions of a thinking being is the act either of the body or only of the mind, and an act of the mind is an act either of the intellectual faculty or of the will. Acts of the intellectual faculty will sometimes rest in the understanding merely, without exerting any influence in the production of any acts of the will. Motives which are not of a nature to influence any other act than those, may be styled purely speculative motives, or motives resting in speculation. But as to these acts, neither do they exercise any influence over external acts, or over their consequences, nor, consequently, over any pain or any pleasure that may be in the number of such consequences. Now, it is only on account of their tendency to produce either pain or pleasure, that any acts can be material. With acts, therefore, that rest purely in the understanding, we have not here any concern. Nor, therefore, with any object, if any such there be, which, in the character of a motive, can have no influence on any other acts than those. The motives with which alone we have any concern are such as are of a nature to act upon the will. By a motive, then, in this sense of the word, is to be understood anything whatsoever, which, by influencing the will of a sensitive being, is supposed to serve as a means of determining him to act, or voluntarily to forbear to act, upon any occasion. Footnote. When the effect or tendency of a motive is to determine a man to forbear to act, it may seem improper to make use of the term motive, since motive, 
properly speaking, means that which disposes an object to move. We must, however, use that improper term, or a term which, though proper enough, is caused in use, the word determinative. By way of justification, or at least apology, for the popular usage in this behalf, it may be observed that even forbearance to act, or the negation of motion, that is, of bodily motion, supposes an act done when such forbearance is voluntary. It supposes, to wit, an act of the will, which is as much a positive act, as much motion, as any other act of the thinking substance. End footnote. Motives of this sort, in contradistinction to the former, may be styled practical motives, or motives applying to practice. Owing to the poverty and unsettled state of language, the word motive is employed indiscriminately to denote two kinds of objects, which, for the better understanding of the subject, it is necessary should be distinguished. On some occasions it is employed to denote any of those really existing incidents from whence the act in question is supposed to take its rise. The sense it bears on these occasions may be styled its literal or unfigurative sense. On other occasions it is employed to denote a certain fictitious entity, a passion, an affection of the mind, an ideal being which upon the happening of any such incident is considered as operating upon the mind, and prompting it to take that course, towards which it is impelled by the influence of such incident. Motives of this case are avarice, indolence, benevolence, and so forth, as we shall see more particularly further on. This latter may be styled the figurative sense of the term motive. As to the real incidents to which the name of motive is also given, these two are of two very different kinds. They may be either, one, the internal perception of any individual lot of pleasure or pain, the expectation of which is looked upon as calculated to determine you to act in such or such a manner, as the pleasure of acquiring such a sum of money, the pain of exerting yourself on such an occasion, and so forth, or two, any external event, the happening whereof is regarded as having a tendency to bring about the perception of such pleasure or such pain, for instance, the coming up of a lottery ticket, by which the possession of the money devolves to you, or the breaking out of a fire in the house you are in, which makes it necessary for you to quit it. The former kind of motives may be termed interior, or internal, the latter exterior, or external. Two other senses of the term motive need also to be distinguished. Motive refers necessarily to action. It is a pleasure, pain, or other event that prompts to action. Motive, then, in one sense of the word, must be previous to such event. But for a man to be governed by any motive, he must in every case look beyond that event which is called inaction. He must look to the consequences of it. And it is only in this way that the idea of pleasure, of pain, or of any other event can give birth to it. He must look, therefore, in every case, to some event posterior to the act in contemplation, 
an event which, as yet, exists not, but stands only in prospect. Now, as it is in all cases difficult, and in most cases unnecessary, to distinguish between objects so intimately connected, as the posterior possible object, which is thus looked forward to, and the present existing object, or event, which takes place upon a man's looking forward to the other, they are both of them spoken of under the same appellation, motive. To distinguish them, the one first mentioned may be termed a motive in prospect, the other a motive in essay. And under each of these denominations will come as well exterior as internal motives. A fire breaks out in your neighbor's house. You are under apprehension of its extending to your own. You are apprehensive that if you stay in, you will be burnt. You accordingly run out of it. This, then, is the act. The others are all motives to it. The event of the fire's breaking out in your neighbor's house is an external motive, and that in essay. The idea or belief of the probability of the fire's extending to your own house, that of your being burnt if you continue, and the pain you feel at the thought of such a catastrophe, are all so many internal events, but still in essay. The event of the fire's actually extending to your own house, and that of your being actually burnt by it, external motives in prospect. The pain you would feel at seeing your house a-burning, and the pain you would feel while you yourself were burning, internal motives in prospect. Which events, according as the matter turns out, may come to be in essay. But then, of course, they will cease to act as motives. Of all these motives, which stand nearest to the act, to the production of which they all contribute, is that internal motive in essay which consists in the expectation of the internal motive in prospect, the pain or uneasiness you feel at the thoughts of being burnt. Footnote. Whether it be the expectation of being burnt, or the pain that accompanies that expectation, that is, the immediate internal motive spoken of, may be difficult to determine. It may even be questioned, perhaps, whether they are distinct entities. Both questions, however, seem to be mere questions of words, and the solution of them altogether immaterial. Even the other kinds of motives, though for some purposes they demand a separate consideration, are, however, so intimately allied that it will often be scarce practicable and not always material, to avoid confounding them, as they have always hitherto been confounded. End footnote. All other motives are more or less remote, the motives in prospect, in proportion as the period at which they are expected to happen, is more distant from the period at which the act takes place, and consequently later in point of time. The motives in essay, in proportion as they also are more distant from that period, are consequently rather earlier in point of time. Footnote. Under the term essay must be included, as well, past existence, with reference to a given period as present. They are equally real, in comparison, with what is as yet but future. A language is materially deficient in not enabling us to distinguish which precision between existence as opposed to unreality, and present existence as opposed to past. The word existence in English and essay 
adopted by lawyers from the Latin, have the inconvenience of appearing to confine the existence in question to some single period considered as being present. End footnote. It has already been observed that with motives of which the influence terminates altogether in the understanding, we have nothing here to do. If, then, amongst objects that are spoken of as motives with reference to the understanding, there be any which concern us here, it is only in as far as such objects may, through the medium of the understanding, exercise an influence over the will. It is in this way, and in this way only, that any objects, in virtue of any tendency they may have to influence the sentiment of belief, may, in a practical sense, act in the character of motives. Any objects, by tending to induce a belief concerning the existence, actual or probable, of a practical motive, that is, concerning the probability of a motive in prospect, or the existence of a motive in essay, may exercise an influence on the will and rank with those other motives that have been placed under the name of practical. The pointing out of motives such as these is what we frequently mean when we talk of giving reasons. Your neighbor's house is on fire as before. I observe to you that at the lower part of your neighbor's house is some woodwork which joins on to yours, that the flames have caught this woodwork, and so forth, which I do in order to dispose you to believe, as I believe, that if you stay in your house much longer, you will be burnt. In doing this, then, I suggest motives to your understanding. Which motives? By the tendency they have to give birth to, or strengthen a pain, which operates upon you in the character of an internal motive in essay, join their force and act as motives upon the will. Section 2 no motives, either constantly good or constantly bad. In all this chain of motives, the principal or original link seems to be the last internal motive in prospect. It is to this that all the other motives in prospect owe their materiality, and the immediately acting motive its existence. This motive in prospect, we see, is always some pleasure or some pain, some pleasure, which the act in question is expected to be a means of continuing or producing, some pain, which it is expected to be a means of discontinuing or preventing. A motive is substantially nothing more than pleasure or pain, operating in a certain manner. Now pleasure is in itself a good, nay, even setting aside immunity from pain, the only good. Pain is in itself an evil, and indeed, without exception, the only evil, or else the words good and evil have no meaning. And this is alike true of every sort of pain, and of every sort of pleasure. It follows, therefore, immediately and incontestably, that there is no such thing as any sort of motive that is in itself a bad one. Footnote let a man's motive be ill-will, call it even malice, envy, cruelty, it is still the kind of pleasure that is his motive, the pleasure he takes at the thought of the pain which he sees, or expects to see, his adversary undergo. 
Now even this wretched pleasure, taken by itself, is good. It may be faint, it may be short, it must at any rate be impure. Yet, while it lasts, and before any bad consequences arrive, it is as good as any other that is not more intense. End footnote. It is common, however, to speak of actions as proceeding from good or bad motives, in which case the motives meant are such as are internal. The expression is far from being an accurate one, and as it is apt to occur in the consideration of most every kind of offence, it will be requisite to settle the precise meaning of it, and observe how far it quadrates with the truth of things. With respect to goodness and badness, as it is with everything else that it's not itself either pain or pleasure, so it is with motives. If they are good or bad, it is only on account of their effects, good on account of their tendency to produce pleasure, or avert pain, bad on account of their tendency to produce pain, or avert pleasure. Now the case is that from one and the same motive, and from every kind of motive, may proceed actions that are good, others that are bad, and others that are indifferent. This we shall proceed to show with respect to all the different kinds of motives, as determined by the various kinds of pleasures and pains. Such an analysis, useful as it is, will be found to be a matter of no small difficulty, owing, in great measure, to a certain perversity of structure which prevails more or less throughout all languages. To speak of motives, as of anything else, one must call them by their names. But the misfortune is that it is rare to meet with a motive of which the name expresses that and nothing more. Commonly, along with the very name of the motive, is tacitly involved a proposition imputing to it a certain quality, a quality which, in many cases, will appear to include that very goodness or badness, concerning which we are here inquiring whether, properly speaking, it be or be not imputable to motives. To use the common phrase, in most cases, the name of the motive is a word which is employed either only in a good sense, or else only in a bad sense. Now when a word is spoken of as being used in a good sense, all that is necessarily meant is this, that in conjunction with the idea of the object it is put to signify, it conveys an idea of approbation, that is, of a pleasure or satisfaction, entertained by the person who employs the term at the thoughts of such object. In like manner, when a word is spoken of as being used in a bad sense, all that is necessarily meant is of a displeasure entertained by the person who employs the term at the thoughts of such object. Now the circumstance on which such approbation is grounded will, as naturally as any other, be the opinion of the goodness of the object in question, as above explained. Such, at least, it must be, upon the principle of utility. So, on the other hand, the circumstance on which any such disapprobation is grounded will, as naturally as any other, be the opinion of the badness of the object, such, 
at least it must be, in as far as the principle of utility is taken for the standard. Now there are certain motives which, unless in a few particular cases, have scarcely any other name to be expressed by, but such a word as is used only in a good sense. This is the case, for example, with the motives of piety and honour. And the consequence of this is, that if, in speaking of such a motive, a man should have occasion to apply the epithet bad to any action which he mentions as apt to result from it, he must appear to be guilty of a contradiction in terms. But the names of motives, which have scarcely any other name to be expressed by, but such a word as is used only in a bad sense, are many more. Footnote. For the reason, see chapter 11, Dispositions, paragraph 17. End footnote. This is the case, for example, with the motives of lust and avarice. And accordingly, if in speaking of any such motive, a man should have occasion to apply the epithets good or indifferent to any actions which he mentions as apt to result from it, he must here also appear to be guilty of a similar contradiction. Footnote. To this imperfection of language, and nothing more, are to be attributed, in great measure, the violent clamours that have from time to time been raised against those ingenious moralists who, travelling out of the beaten tract of speculation, have found more or less difficult in disentangling themselves from the shackles of ordinary language, such as Rochefoucauld, Montville, and Helvetius. To the unsoundness of their opinions, and with still greater injustice, to the corruption of their hearts, was often imputed, that was most commonly owing either to a want of skill in matters of language on the part of the author, or a want of discernment, possibly now and then, in some instances, a want of probity, on the part of the commentator. End footnote. This perverse association of ideas cannot, it is evident, but throw great difficulties in the way of the inquiry now before us. Confining himself to the language most in use, a man can scarce avoid running, in appearance, into perpetual contradictions. His propositions will appear, on one hand, repugnant to truth, and on the other hand, adverse to utility. As paradoxes, they will excite contempt, as mischievous paradoxes, indignation. For the truths he labours to convey, however important, and however salutary, his reader is never the better, and he himself is much the worse. To obviate this inconvenience completely, he has but this one unpleasant remedy, to lay aside the old phraseology and invent a new one. Happy the man whose language is ductile enough to permit him this resource. To palliate the inconvenience, where that method of obviating it is impracticable, he has nothing left for it but to enter into a long discussion, to state the whole matter at large, to confess that for the sake of promoting the purposes, he has violated the established laws of language, and to throw himself upon the mercy of his readers. Footnote. Happily, language is not always so intractable, but that by making use of two words instead of one, a man may avoid the inconvenience of fabricating words that are absolutely new. Thus, 
instead of the word lust, by putting together two words in common use, he may frame the neutral expression, sexual desire. Instead of the word avarice, by putting together two other words also in common use, he may frame the neutral expression, pecuniary interest. This, accordingly, is the course which I have taken. In these instances, indeed, even the combination is not novel. The only novelty there is consists in the steady adherence to the one neutral expression, by rejecting altogether the terms of which the import is infected by adventitious and unsuitable ideas. In the catalogue of motives, corresponding to the several sorts of pains and pleasures, I have inserted such as have occurred to me. I cannot pretend to warrant it complete. To make sure of rendering it so, the only way would be to turn over the dictionary from beginning to end, an operation which, in a view to perfection, would be necessary for more purposes than this. End footnote. End of part A of section 10.